Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well... That and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Sarit Becker. I'm Itamar Srulovic. Together we run a couple of Middle Eastern restaurants in London. And we also do our fair share of food writing. You're listening to Honey & Cold where we take turns interviewing interesting people from the world of food in front of a small audience at our deli, Honey and Spice. In this series, we'll be meeting producers and makers who create some of the essential ingredients in cooking. The people you're going to hear from supply us, inspire us, improve our cooking and our life in general. We hope you enjoy and have fun geeking out with us about all things food. Enjoy! enjoy. So tonight we're joined by Dale and Sarah from Bermondsey Street Bees. They're making honey here in central London, Right under the shard, they have the highs at the top of their home, on the roof of their home. We learned about honey from ancient Egypt to monasteries in Europe to present day. We learned what to look for in a jar of honey, how to know that it's the good stuff and not the rubbish that you get at the supermarket. We hope you enjoy as much as we did. It was sweet. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Honey and Coat. Today we are staying very on brand and talking about one of our favorite subjects, honey. We have Dale and Sarah from Bermondsey Street Bees with us. We went to see their hives in actually on Bermondsey Street on the, what is it, fourth floor? Yeah. Fifth floor. Yeah. Just under the shard, we'll tell you all about this later. They have this site, they have 15 other sites that they manage. And they, uh, what's the word, distribute a lot of artisan honey from the UK. Uh, I want you to please give a big hand to Sarah and Dale. A big, a big honey and spice welcome to the honey people. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Dale, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background. Dale was uh, working in finance and he got the sting. Can we say that? <laughs> yeah, Do you, you hear can. that all the time? You can move it along. Yeah. You <laughs> <laughs> he got the, the sting for honey and has been doing it for years now. And Sarah is a honey sommelier. A real thing, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, it's a thing. Who would have thunk it? <laughs> the times we live in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, honey sommelier. So, Sarah, tell us a little bit about honey. You know the history of it. Bees have been on Earth for 88 million years, which is a very long time, and we humans have been here in a recognisable shape for around about 200,000 years. So we're really Johnny Come Lately. They've weathered 
the most extraordinary things. They're a very, very adaptable thing, bees. They split from the wasps but about 88 million years ago. Wasps decided to go off and be carnivores. And bees developed alongside the trees, which were changing from pine cones into flowers to attract pollinators, better than, than having wind pollination. The very first sweetness that human beings would ever have encountered in a pure form would have been when they robbed wild honeybee nests. So it is the original luxury food. Our history is interwoven with the history of bees. Ancient economies depended on honey. It was a very, very important thing. But again, it was a luxury. It was something that was bought and sold as a, as a huge luxury it was given to princes and kings it was something that was absolutely vital to the existence of primitive people as a medicine and as a cosmetic and as something that was very nutritious to them it allowed people to exist in places like deserts where you know generally it would have been very hard to exist so you you literally cannot overstate the importance of honey in our development as human beings I've, we have seen you know the the magnificent um Hieroglyphs yes, in, yeah, in, in Egypt. In Egypt, yeah. Where, yes. where you can see the actual story of, of beekeeping. Egypt, because they had an absolute passion for writing things down. So you, you find all sorts of detail about the keeping of honey. So effectively, what happened was human beings progressed from being hunter gatherers. Um, so they would have been just raiding the wild bee nest and then the next thing that happened was people would actually stake a claim on a patch in the forest or somewhere where there were wild bees and they'd say these bees are mine this honey is mine and I'm going to look after it so then people started to notice that bees would nest swarms would nest in upturned pots and in logs and things and thought well maybe if I put a pot or a log in a specific place, then maybe I can actually, these bees will be more mine and nobody will contest my claim to that, that particular patch. Um, and so then you see, as you saw, when you, when, when you went to Egypt, yes, you saw the, the, the pipes all ranked up where people were actually starting to build colonies of bees and tend those bees and the reason for that was because the economic value of honey was so high. So the person who actually looked after the bees in the Egyptian court was a very, very high status. And the bee is used as a symbol of industry and a symbol of certain Egyptian gods. And again, you know, this wonderful story that it was buried in, in, in the uh, pyramids and that honey that stems from, from the, the time of goodness knows who, Tutankhamun say, is still edible today. I think that one doesn't actually hold water, but there's no reason why it shouldn't. If it was well sealed, it would still be honey to this on, day. On paper, it works. On paper, it works. It's or a charming on, yeah, on urban myth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the, or in terracotta. Yeah. <laughs> And it was it was used for for trade as well. Very much so. It's yeah. currency. It really was currency because people craved it. People, not only for the sweetness and for the joy that that brought, but particularly its medicinal use. It's so well documented. People's health depended on on honeys, on specific honeys. And again, you had a lovely story of going to a to a, a honey chemist, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, in, still, still, you know, a couple of months ago in Alexandria, yeah. walking around the market, and and we walked into a honey shop, and it was just like going to a pharmacy, and you would get your prescription. And there was a really old guy coming in, and they were making like a special mix for him. And they told us, "Oh yeah, he has a new wife, so he needs something <laughs> to get him going." A true yeah. story. Yeah. A true story. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. we don't sell that honey. Yeah. <laughs> going to to Europe and a further, bit further in time, it, ha it was 
quite connected to monasteries yeah. and you know yeah. multiple so uses there for yeah from, for again wax. very well documented from very early medieval times you find pharmacopoeias which have a lot of uses of honey as salves as um, as decoctions brewed up with herbs in all sorts of things mead originally started off as a as a medical thing it was given to people as a tonic so there were various reasons why honeybees were so widely tended by monks uh, one of them is 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 that uh, medical use the other was they would use it for brewing they always had in their monasteries certain amount to drink went on I think Henry VIII had something to say about that. The other really important use was the fact that it made beeswax so beeswax candles burn clean unlike tallow candles which people used to have in churches so if you had a church a very primitive church with horn windows which they would originally have been a beaten and flattened horn if if you were burning a tallow candle it was so obscure in there anyway, the light, that it wouldn't really matter if the inside became very sort of smoky and disgusting. Once people started to have glass and then stained glass, the last thing you wanted was to have that covered with soot. So beeswax candles became really important from that point of view. Yeah, but, but then, you know, the practices of, of uh, beekeeping and, and extracting honey stayed pretty much the same, you know, from ancient Egypt till yeah. kind of the beginning of the... Originally honey was crushed. Yeah. Um, and crushed from the... Cr crushed from the comb. Yeah. So if you were beekeeping in a skep, in a straw skep, you had to take all the comb out. You had to, to squash it to actually get the honey out, which meant losing the colony and losing the wax, which is a very important thing for the bees. It takes them a lot of energy to build wax. Uh, so the advent of modern beekeeping in... 1852. 1852. Oh. Reverend Langstroth. Lorenzo Langstroth. Lorenzo Langstroth, Langstroth yeah. <laughs> um, he was the first person who really invented hives with movable frames like this, which enable us to take honey the honey that is you know available to us rather than just robbing the bees for its own sake um, without disturbing the colony and that made that a really huge change so there are some honeys which are still crushed one of those is heather honey ling heather honey is like a is granulates immediately and yeah. ivy honey as well um, and so those have to be crushed and I mean in the old days they would have been crushed between wooden rollers or possibly stone rollers with muslin wrapped around them and then that whole sticky mess would be dripped through muslin um, nowadays they're just put through stainless steel rollers but again they still have to to drip so that makes those honeys that are produced in that way again very expensive because they're very time intensive but also because you're losing the wax you're not you're not killing the colony not like the old-fashioned beekeepers had to but you are losing that precious wax and then they have to spend more energy making yeah, it they have yet yeah. well, i'll yeah. tell you two interesting fact about this wine this uh, honey sommelier uh she actually lives under the hives you know, <laughs> how, how many do you have like three of them eight eight, eight of them then, um, when uh, i was there it was yeah, three yeah and the other fact is that she's allergic to bees <laughs> Yeah, I which know. is just the How mind boggles. How did you slide this whole thing past me? I don't know. How did you, Del? <sighs> well, I, I just woke up one morning and said I'd like to go on a beekeeping course. Sarah <laughs> reminded me that she was um, quite seriously allergic to bee stings. Um, and I, I, I persisted, saying that I would just go on my own. And then she decided that she would show incredible valour and um, uh, honour and, and, and go and join me on the beekeeping course. Yeah. And we had this just lovely day. I mean, it was really exciting. I totally got how bees could be, you know, fascinating. But at the end of the day, I thought, great, we've done bees now. Fantastic. <laughs> but Dale just 
it just had grabbed you, hadn't it? Yeah. It just was your thing. You thought you were just going to tick a box, yeah. and then you're still ticking Oh, I thought, uh, you know, that's absolutely it. And then he, he, you know, slid that past me. The, so he did his training, which is really important. So I had a little bit of a breathe. I didn't quite realise what I was in for. So there were a variety of things which were the great untruths. One was that it takes no time at all to be a beekeeper every week. Not, tr not at all true. Um, the other is that it, it, he said it took very little equipment, very little equipment. So yeah, our entire just, house. Just need an old bucket and yeah, some nets. Several sheds, a railway arch later. Yeah, it still takes very little equipment. Uh, <laughs> and the other thing that he didn't tell me was that you never have a holiday, a summer holiday again in your life if you're a beekeeper. Because you need to be, you know, as Dale is at the moment, in the hives from dawn till dusk. But this you, is, I, you, I just wish all of you could come there because it is, you know, one of those narrow Bermondsey houses and, and you climb really, really narrow steps. And then we had to walk a plank. Am I imagining it? Or on there, the there leads, was a plank? On the leads. We've, yeah. Now yeah. Got a, we've now got a sort of fourth bridge construction. Like a, lit, a literal plank Teacher that we walked along. on in the whole kit. Yeah. Which we're, we're quite, you know, not the most agile pair as it is. And my wife is petrified of heights. But it was, it was just, we could have stayed there forever. It was just amazing. Yeah. But tell us a little bit, Dale, about what does a beekeeper do? Like, what is your job? Well, uh, the beekeeper's job is a lot like my old job, really, in, in finance. And there I had clients, and my duty was to put my clients' interests first, and my own interests would be subservient to that. So as a beekeeper, my clients are the bees, and I have to put their interests first as biological specimens, and my interest, which would be getting through the hive quickly, going home and uh, putting my feet up or um, extracting lots of honey, which the bees couldn't spare, um, is not something which we're going to do. So, so we have a sort of continuum of care going on through the process of switching from finance to beekeeping. But what beekeepers do, essentially, is to keep the bees. It's made up of two words, and that's really the secret. <laughs> what it says on the it. tin. Yeah. It is very much like that. But, but you know, keeping the bees is not as straightforward as it may sound. Let's take it from first principles. Bees are, in English law, wild animals. They belong to you while they're on your property. They don't belong to you when they're off their, your property. So keeping them is meaningful because you are responsible for them where they are. And um, keeping them isn't always easy, as this time of year often demonstrates. You know, in Wimbledon week, you'll always find a swarm of bees on a traffic light in Oxford Street that stops the traffic even more than Donald Trump visiting um, Westminster. So uh, it's a seasonal thing that happens. And if you let your bees swarm, two things happen. One is you lose all the honey that's on the hive because the bees need that to take it away from the hive, half the bees fly off with the old queen to find uh, a new hive. They need the energy from the honey to build the wax. So as a beekeeper, you've just lost all your honey, well done. And you lose half your bees. So you haven't kept very much if you look at the balance sheet of um, beekeeping and swarming bees. So I would say that you need to invent another word for what you're doing if you're a beekeeper who regularly um, lets your bees swarm. So a beekeeper's duty to prevent any adverse action in the hive. This is the brood box where the bees make more bees. And this is the bit I'm interested in, because if I can keep this part healthy, give the bees space, make sure that the queen is laying properly, work a brood, then the bees will do the rest. So the bees spend the first part of the year making more bees. And once they've made more bees, I don't tell them 
don't have to tell them how to make the honey. They just do that all on their own. They do kind of keep themselves alive during the winter and then in the summer it's all happening. I mean, they're straight, I mean everyone loves honeybees and they are adorable things and, and, and Disney does strange things to them but um, we, we try and recognise them for the three different castes in a hive that there are. There's the worker bee which is female bee, there's the queen bee uh, and she's the mother of all of the bees in the hive. And there's the drones, the male bees, who can roam around a bit between hives, but their only job is to eat and mate with queen bees. Can do worse? It, it couldn't it be? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Except they die as a consequence. Well, I was Everyone going to die. say that you know, again, the shiny, blissful image of bees that we have is at the end of the year to protect that stored honey, and knowing that the male bees are biologically not needed during the winter because there is no queen breeding that goes on in those temperatures um, the, their sisters will kick them out of the hive uh, in August and September and uh, if the bees if the drones come back in they'll bite their wings off and then kick them out again just to make sure they don't come back in because they can't risk the male bees eating the honey supplies and therefore jeopardising that deliberate plan to overwinter as a live colony using the honey energy to heat the hive to the human body temperature at the core the brood nest where um, the bees are making more bees. I mean the strange thing is if you think about um, their life cycle the bees will start preparing for winter in just under three weeks time. Now most of us probably haven't gone on our summer holidays yet yeah. so we haven't really got over the idea that it's going to be summer for quite a while but the bees start changing the biology and the body um, components of bees born into July and August to make them winter style bees who will not be flying as much obviously because there's no food um, who have um, less need to generate the chemicals to create wax in their bodies and to create royal jelly in their <coughs> bodies all of which are very exhausting for a bee system these are really complex chemicals the chemicals the chemical um, signature of uh, uh, beeswax is about as long as a Welsh railway station name. You know, it really goes on for a lot, and it's not easy for a small insect to make that. So um, that tends to wear out the bodies of the summer bees so that they probably only live between 30, 40 days in the summer because not only are they, oh. as young bees, making mm. all of that chemical process and working hard in the hive, but then in the two or three weeks they have as flying bees, eventually their wings get tatty and they just aren't airborne anymore. They can't get aerodynamic with tatty wings so um, the life cycle of bees is, is somewhat sort of disappointing to people when they recognize that summer bees are only going to live for 35 or 40 days and that winter bees can live up to six months um, I mean, one interesting thing is that honeybees only bring four things into a hive one which is water which is no big surprise then um, there's nectar which is the carbohydrate that they use um, to um, feed their uh, young and keep the hive heated. More importantly, pollen is the protein for their young um, bees when they're in the larval state. Mm -hmm. And um, there's one other thing they bring into the hive. Most people don't know what it looks like and haven't heard of it, and yet it's just as important for the bees as the water, the nectar, and the wax. And Sarah's going to hold up yeah, some of it. Is, yeah. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't come in lumps like this out of the hive. Dale just takes tiny bits it's off. It's a brown, round, like. resinous-smelling lump yeah, of something 
that looks vaguely... You wouldn't want to step on it in the park if you saw it. <laughs> it's propolis. So anybody who you know, has ever been to a French pharmacy will have seen uh, that you know, they're laden with propolis products. Just as much as honey, propolis is a terroir thing. Each propolis will be different. In the hive, they use it to glue bits of hive together. So the most important tool a beekeeper has is a hive tool, which is to basically crack it open where they've glued it together. It's an amazing substance. So in the wild, bees will actually insulate their nests with propolis. Um, it's a fire retardant, even though it actually, you know, it smells as if it should be something that would go on fire, yeah. it retards fire. But also it is their medicine. It's antifungal, it's antiviral, it's antibacterial. So those are the properties that we're using as humans when we're taking, you know, making a medicinal use of it. But the, that's what the bees use to medicate themselves as well. So it, it's crucial. To Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We're just going to talk about extracting the honey because this is, you know, the bees actually need it to, to, survive, to survive. So, of course, you can't take all the honey. No. If you if you are you know responsible uh, yeah. beekeeper, sometimes you can't take any. Yeah. So how how do you gauge how much honey? Well, we we, we heft the hive, so so we lift it at one side, um, and it's one of those things that becomes a knack. You know, once you've done it with other people when you're training, you begin to get an idea. And the the plan is you're trying to aim for something like twenty five pounds to thirty pounds of honey inside the brood box to overwinter with. We never take any honey from the brood box to begin with. We're only taking honey from the supers, so that means there is an embedded level of honey available. Putting honey above the brood box in winter isn't such a great idea because bees are very reluctant to move to food when it's cold. So they'd rather sit where they are, clustered around the queen bee, maintaining their integrity and temperature rather than move even if food was two inches away you actually have to shove the food onto them. So you're very conscious about making sure that the honey that you take is just the kind of surplus? 
Well, Sarah's going to talk a bit about our, our, our spring crop. Um, yeah. So we, we have never taken a spring crop from Bermondsey Street um, before. And this year, well, what's happened is really the combination of last year and this year. Last year um, was a very good summer. The bees ended very strong. They came out of winter this year very strong. And spring has really helped by providing them with lots of forage. I just want Sarah, the, the honey sommelier, to tell us a little bit about how we taste honey. Essentially, if you Are you guys taking notes? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to just go back to basics a little bit and just try and explain the difference between real honey. I hope this is an okay place to do this because it leads into what I'm going to talk about, real honey and supermarket processed honey. So one of the easiest, the, there are several direct equations, wine, olive oil, coffee. Coffee's one that's a really easy one. So I often say if you had in your left hand a beautiful greasy gorgeous hand of a single estate coffee that had been very carefully knowledgeably and lovingly produced by somebody who really knows coffee inside out and in the other hand you have you know a handful of supermarket freeze-dried instant coffee they bear no relation to one another the complexity of taste that you've got there as opposed to this sort of flat dry dead product that's created out of it they both say coffee on them but they are not related in any way so with honey you have that same thing you have that it is an absolute subject of its terroir it comes from the soil as much as wine as much as olive oil every year will be different every hive will make our eight hives on the roof will make eight different honeys completely different honeys and uh, you know you just think wow guys you know there's only a finite amount of forage in this area but they have their own determination which probably comes from their queen um, so when you actually have a really good beautiful honey that is a polyfloral honey as, as are most of our honeys are in this country there are very very few monoflorals in this country because we're a crowded island so each source each nectar source will actually have a def different chemical makeup so in honey the trick of tasting is to allow those layers to reveal themselves to you so there is a technique which is used mostly you see you're tasting honey it's mitigated by something maybe by bread or whatever could be cheese so the, the effect is delayed on your palate when you're putting honey straight in your mouth as you're going to do later if you taste it you have to switch off that primitive response I was talking about, that amazing, powerful, ancient response we have, which is the yearning for sugar. So that's what our brains will immediately register is, hey, this is sweet, this is exciting. But in, when we're doing honey tastings, there's one word nobody's allowed to say, and that's sweet, because that is self-evident. Even when it's a bitter honey, it still has sweet notes in it. So we, we, we taste by, it's a, it's a technique which is very much used in the wine trade and in chocolate sometimes as well, which is to basically switch off that immediate response by holding your nose. So I'm going to get you, when you're tasting the honey, to hold your nose, there's some wooden spoons, and you'll put, put a decent amount of honey. People take a tiny little bit. You can't really understand honey if, it, if it's just a tiny little bit. And you'll stick it behind your teeth, still holding your nose. Take the spoon out, because otherwise you're just going to taste wood. And just still holding your nose for a count of five. Just let your tongue very gradually spread it onto your palate. 
and then let go of your nose and breathe through. And then those layers will start to differentiate themselves. And in a really good honey, you will literally go from one thing to another. It's like, you know, those amazing gobstoppers that have layer after layer after layer. It's a bit like that, but more rapid. It, it's, it's worth doing with monofloral honeys as well, because they are very rarely exactly one floral, but you won't get anything like the, the amazing response when you, when you open up something that's a polyfloral from masses and masses of different forage sources. So our London honey last year had 36 different pollens traceable in it, which was a, well, a record for that laboratory who'd ever, you know, the, the most they'd ever analysed. So just, just to explain, that means 36 different plants. Yeah, and also there's a lot of plants that are low, very low pollen. So, so things like lavender yeah. probably won't show up, but they will have had a nectar component. So in fact, you're probably looking at something closer to 60 or 70 sources, each of which will be bringing its own chemical signature into that honey. And, and that for me is the joy, is actually exploring that. So this little technique that I'm gonna teach you will just give you an opportunity to understand honey when you, if you buy something, I'm always saying, buy something funky, buy something that challenges you. If you always like light honey, buy a dark one and experiment with it. And if you know how to taste it, then it becomes something quite exciting. It's like, it's like just not always having the same cheese. Buy something really wacky and see if it appeals. And um, the good thing with honey is that if it's rubbish and you don't like it, you can use it as the best hair pack that ever was in the whole history of anything. <laughs> so, really? Yeah, it's a Lebanese, Lebanese trick, is honey on your hair. You know, for the cook, it can be such an amazing ingredient. You know, it can be such a, a good way to, to and to bring in those subtle mm, flavors mm. and different honeys can can take the same yeah. dish to such different um, places yeah, completely transform it yeah, yeah definitely. one of the questions we sometimes have when people come to see Sarah's global honey library is so why do all the honeys look different and the answer really is that's the wrong question the question is why do all the honeys on the supermarket shelf look the same because they started off looking different just like all of these honeys do now yeah. different textures different lights different um, aromas everything is different from the locality it comes from so to make it homogenous and commodity is a really tough job you have to break the honey really hard you have to put it through the rigors of uh, heat microfiltration it will be transported halfway around the world Let's, let's talk a little bit about, because there is a lot of talk about, uh, you know, raw honey mm. and, and heat-treated heat honey. And it's, it's kind of, there's a lot of words being used. But what, what, is, the, what is the essential difference between, you know, uh, what we buy in the supermarket um, and what we buy in I think nice fancy delis like this one? Uh, <laughs> a lot of it. It comes from, from the production and a sympathetic production. So I mean, we handle the honey as little as we possibly can. So as opposed to pumping it under pressure through miles of stainless steel, which degrades the honey immediately, heating it, which really destroys a lot of its aromas, but also breaks I mean, just it. Like, he, just like, you, you can see it even at home, you know, with, yeah. with just heat a little bit of honey. And, yeah. and, and it starts immediately it. To, to lose its, its beauty. Yeah. The microfiltering, is done for two reasons. So one is because the supermarkets have taught people to believe that a honey that is crystallized is, is bad and you should therefore throw it away. And you can see why they would, because it sends you back to buy another clear, squeezy, whatever. Whereas in fact, it's a natural tendency of, of most honeys is, is to set either immediately or over time, depending on, on the forage. 
So by taking out the pollens, they are removing the focus points of crystallization and delaying the crystallization, giving it a longer shelf life. But also, and far more sinisterly, they're also removing, in effect, the DNA of the honey. So if it does go through a laboratory test, which not nearly enough honey does, but if it did, and they spotted Chinese pollens on something that was branded an EU product, uh, that would be fairly suspicious. The Chinese have been caught recently putting European pollens into honey that they have already denatured, but they made the mistake of making every single pollen profile in every jar exactly the same. Which doesn't, which wouldn't happen. <laughs> which would never happen. Yes, so I mean they got caught, but I think it's a hoist by their own petard moment. At many points in the process there's the opportunity to cut it with other sugars, and they become very, very sophisticated now because again, screening can pick up sugars that have been added to it, but they're there in, in pretty plentiful quantities. So by the time you've heated it, microfiltered it, pushed it through miles of stainless steel, you've effectively boiled it back from a very wet liquid that you've had to, to create in order to blend all these different honeys. You end up with something that is basically just sugar. In a way, your your methods of extraction are just yeah, so I mean, I, so, so like little as little yeah, intervention as, little as intervention. possible. So I, I, I breed the queen bees, um, I manage all the bees and uh, I bring um, the honey off the roof and from various other sites um, into our extraction room and uh, I extract the honey um, using uh, three, three different methods really. Um, one is a, a roller to break the surface of the honey, the wax cappings, and then make the honey available to the centrifuge. Uh, and the other is to use sometimes what I call a hot air gun, but you might call it a hairdryer. Um, so it doesn't heat the honey in any degree, it just melts the wax back on the cap. So it's very, very light. So we're saving as much wax as possible. And when the TV companies show up, we, we get the knife out, because they like to see the knife. It's very theatrical. Yeah, they want a really good slice of that. But then I you've mean, got a lot of waste wax to deal with. Absolutely. But it looks amazing. Yeah. So um, what we're doing there, uh, for example, with the extraction, is uh, getting the honey down through the drum through a simple filter to take out the dead bees and lumps of wax and then we rest the honey. Uh, we then put it through a 350 micron nylon conical filter, which again just takes out smaller bits of wax. And then finally we put it through a 200 micron filter after it's rested for a while. So the largest pollens in the world are less than 200 microns, and the ones in this country are normally in the sort of mid tens. Yeah. So we're not taking anything out of the honey, which is meant to be in there, the way the bees prepare it. We're just taking out the residual effect of our process of breaking the wax caps, putting wax into the honey and taking it out again through the filters. All of this again is done cold, which means room temperature. It doesn't mean we chill it. It just means it's not heated above hive temperature at any stage of the process. Mm. Yeah. It's about time. We invest an awful lot of time. Dale invests an awful lot of Anglo-Saxon swearing into huh. spinning. It's long, it's hard, they're very long. I mean, in harvest time we're working 18 hour days, seven days a week. It is worth remembering, because you do sometimes balk at, at the price of, of good honey, and especially when you compare it to, you know, one pint ninety yeah. that, you, that you pay in, in yeah. the supermarket. And then and you come and you, you pay, you know, quite a lot of money for a jar. Mm. But this is, there, there's no, it's not the same product of a different grade. It's just, no, it's back one to my, is the it's real back thing to my and one is, yeah. Thing, you know, it's just, uh, I mean, any fool can make that right hand, you know, 
dusty pile of, of freeze-dried coffee. That greasy handful is, is, is the work of true love and, and attention. And, and I think Honey will tell that story as well. So give us three tips about what we should, how we should find the good honey. Eyeball a beekeeper. So going to everybody will have a local beekeeping association, whether you live in town or country. If you go onto the British Beekeepers, uh, just bbka.org website, you will find that they will have uh, find my local beekeeping association by postcode. They will all have open days, and all the beekeepers will be there, and you can go and taste their honey. And you basically, in the way that you have a dentist or a hairdresser, you can have a beekeeper who you buy the honey from. The other way I tend to look for the website of the producer. And if I find some scruffy little guy like this at the end of the, of, then I know he's probably is a proper producer. If I find some huge organisation who sell everything, including honey, I'm not buying a thing from them. Yeah, I mean, we, we always enjoy uh, buying from really. Yeah, because you have lovely yeah. Regent's Park honey, yeah. and you have yeah, yeah. You, on your doorstep, you've got fabulous honey. Yeah, and we have you know this lovely lady mm. that. that we buy our honey from North London. Yeah, 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 so like exactly, it. buy local. It, yeah. it, it is really super important. And I mean, there is this hay fever thing as well. People swear by it, by taking local honey as a sort of inoculation. It gives your body, as far as I understand it, it's a chance to respond to the things that are allergens, but in a very safe way. So I, I have really bad hay fever. And when I first started tasting honey, I kept going on about, oh my God, it's really hot. Can anyone else taste this heat in this honey? And then somebody said to me, that's the pollen. You're responding to the pollen. So as it touches the mucous membrane in your body, your body's going, hello, hello. I actually want you to know that I'm slightly allergic to this, but it's, it's not going to cause a reaction which is in any way problematic. But it just rehearses so that your body when it's then hit with it in the atmosphere doesn't have a massive histamine release and cause a big problem and so many people swear by it I have to believe that it is something that's really useful please join me in a big hand to Sarah and Dale and thank you so much for coming to be with well, us Dale. thank you guys for coming so much for listening to our latest episodes if you'd like to join one of the next talks please follow us on social media at honey and co or go on our website honeyandco.co.uk we would really appreciate if you took some time and rated us at itunes only five stars please with a huge thanks to hester Kant for producing a special thanks to our own louisa cornford for her wonderful research and the music is by the lovely alice russell thanks for listening Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.